Genesis 32, and if you have an electronic device, or if you have a Bible with you, you feel free to turn there. You might be using a different translation. If you have neither, then feel free to watch other verses on the screen. But let me read them if I could. Verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Paniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This is the second part of a three-part message on the subject of change. Change. We're examining a section this morning and next time from Genesis chapter 32, where we see four phases, four phases that together all together can result in someone creating meaningful, purposeful change. This morning, though, we have just enough time to address phase one. So we're just going to get into this section. Phase one is God sometimes uses a crisis to initiate change. God sometimes uses a crisis to initiate necessary change. God wants us to change. And if we aren't changing on our own as we ought to, then sometimes God causes or sometimes God permits a crisis to happen in order to get our attention and motivate us to change. One example of that is found here in Genesis 32. This section is about a famous Old Testament character named Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of an even more famous uh, character named Abraham. The genealogical progression was that Abraham, in his old age, had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had twin sons named Esau and Jacob. In the text we just read, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Jacob, hyphen Israel, fathered twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. That was the beginning or the birth of the nation of Israel. These three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are called patriarchs. The word patriarch means father. And these three men are considered the beginning patriarchs, or famous founding fathers and progenitors of the Jewish people. God wanted to bless Jacob hyphen Israel. God wanted to bless his twelve sons and succeeding generations from them. And so it was essential that Jacob change in order to become the man God wanted him to be. Jacob's birth name, his original name, Jacob, meant supplanter and deceiver. And true to his name, Jacob became a conniver, a deceiver, and a cheat. And he essentially stole his brother's birthright. 
Some Bibles add a footnote that reads, Jacob's name meant he cheats. Jacob needed to change. In order to initiate that change in Jacob, God created a crisis. It's not that God just permitted this crisis, but God actually caused this crisis to happen. And that crisis is described starting in verse 24. One more time. Notice, then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25. Now when he, this man, saw that he did not prevail against him, Jacob, meaning when this man uh, could see that he was not able to overpower Jacob, he, this man, touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob was engaged in a wrestling match. Understand, this was not the WWE. WWE means World Wrestling Entertainment. Vince McMahon is a chairman and CEO of WWE. He is a multi-billionaire. The WWE is more entertainment than actual wrestling. That means there's an element, a strong element of phoniness in the WWE. The insane craziness and foolishness and athletic stunts are real, but the matches are not. It is not legitimate wrestling. But this wrestling match Jacob found himself in was the real deal. Jacob's opponent was called a man. Notice man is spelled capital M-A-N. Because this was an unusual man. But then notice in verse 30, this same individual is also identified as God himself. Verse 30 reads, So Jacob called the name of the place Paniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. On the surface, that one phrase seems problematic. Jacob said, for I have seen God face to face. Why is that a problem? Exodus 33 verse 20 reads, but he, this is God, God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Jacob survived this God encounter. He didn't die that night. So the question is, did Jacob actually see God face to face or not? Listen to this. This phrase where Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, means Jacob was able to see a diluted, manifested form of God. Jacob was able to see God in a more limited, less glorified form. Most biblical historians and theologians believe this could have been a theophany or a Christophany. Notice the definition, a theophany is the manifestation of God in a form that was tangible to some of the human senses. A manifestation of God in a form that was tangible to some of the senses, not necessarily all, of, all five of the human senses, but tangible to the human senses. But understand something, the word theophany could also be used to describe the manifestation of a false god, and not just a Judeo-Christian god. Christians, though, use the word theophany almost exclusively to describe the different manifestations of the one true God, such as in the Old Testament. God presented himself to Moses on the backside of the desert in the form of a burning bush. 
God spoke to him from that bush, a bush that would burn and wouldn't burn out and be consumed. That was a theophany. In our Daniel series, we just mentioned a Christophany. Remember, in addition to the three Jewish exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those men were cast into the fiery furnace. There was a fourth man in that furnace, and that fourth man could have been a Christophany. Notice the definition. A Christophany was a manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that was tangible to some of the human senses. The word Christophany, don't miss this, applies to Jesus Christ and no one else. Whereas the word theophany applies to God and not necessarily, contingent on the context, not necessarily the one true God. Most commentators argue that Jacob's wrestling opponent was a Christophany, that this man he wrestled against was the pre-incarnate Jesus. For those that could be uninformed about this, Jesus has always existed as a member of the eternal triune Godhead. We believe there is one God. This one God, though, exists in three co-equal persons, a Father, a Son, Jesus, and a Holy Spirit. So Jesus has always existed as God. But in addition to being God, He also became human at His birth at Bethlehem, something we celebrate at Christmas. That's called His incarnation. Incarnation comes from the Latin word caro, C-A-R-O, caro. Caro means meat or flesh. An example, most people appreciate a bowl of chili con carne. Con carne, that's chili beans mixed with meat. Another example, carnivores are flesh-eating animals, such as the lions or cougars that habitat the Sierra Nevada mountain range. God, pardon me, Jesus is God incarnate meaning He is God in actual human flesh and form. He was and still is the God-man. He is as much God as if He'd never been man. He's as much man as if He'd never been God. That's considered His hypostatic union. Jesus is the God-man. That's the incarnation. Throughout the Old Testament, though, if Jesus wanted to manifest Himself to someone, since He did not at that time have His permanent human form, because it was before his birth and incarnation at Bethlehem, then he would manifest himself in the form of an angel. This is interesting, because Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4, comment on this and state that this person Jacob wrestled against was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was sometimes identified as God's Son, Jesus, manifesting Himself in a pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate human form. Contrary to romantic folklore and modern songwriters, angels do not manifest themselves to humans as women, but as men. Angels manifest themselves to us as males, not females. I met Hopi a month before she turned sweet 16. Because we had just started dating, I felt it was in my best interest to celebrate that special birthday uh, through some gifts. 
I gave her some perfume, Chanel number no. five, I have no idea if it even exists. Uh, and then I gave her a record. Now, for emerging generations, a record was an analog or digital audio musical recording pressed onto a large vinyl disc that was then played on a turntable. <laughs> Records are found in museums, <clears throat> right beside eight tracks and CDs. This particular record was from a popular group at that time called The Vogues. And that album featured the song, You Are My Special Angel. That was such a lame song. <laughs> Hopi is not a special angel. Hopi's not an angel at all. Because angels have never manifested themselves as females. Angels in scripture always manifested themselves to humans as men. So the consensus among evangelical theologians is that this was a Christophany, that Jacob wrestled with God's son Jesus, Yeshua in the original ancient Hebrew, Yeshua, Jesus in a pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate form, as an angel manifesting himself as a man. This was a serious wrestling match. And notice that it lasted all night long, because it didn't end until dawn. It is important to understand that this pre-incarnate, messianic, angel-manifested man, Jesus, purposely diluted his divine strength, or else this match would have not have lasted the entire night. If this pre-incarnate Jesus had not restricted and limited his infinite strength, then Jacob would have been in, annihilated in an instant. It is entirely accurate to argue that this intense wrestling match constituted a legitimate personal crisis. Think about that. If someone required us to actually grapple against this divine man in even a much diluted form and to do that hours and hours on end, wouldn't that be considered at least a facsimile of a mind and body crisis? I think so. And God used that crisis to get Jacob's attention so that he might be motivated to want change. I also need to underscore the seriousness of this match because verse 25 states that this divine man dislocated Jacob's hip joint. I spoke to a chiropractor friend of mine about the intricate nature of this hip dislocation. He pulled out some anatomy books and explained it to me like this. The large upper leg bone is called the femur and most people know that. And this, the upper end of that femur bone is rounded and ball-shaped. And this ball-shaped end of the femur bone is inserted into a socket-like joint in the hip. And that is illustrated on this diagram. That enables the femur bone, and in turn the entire leg, to rotate and move around in an omnidirectional sense, meaning move in all directions. The statement is made in verse 25 that this pre-incarnate messianic man touched Jacob's hip and dislocated it. That means he actually pulled the ball end of the femur bone out of the hip socket. This is an extremely, uh, an extreme example of an actual dislocated hip joint. That picture just screams excruciating pain to me, just seeing that. This text does not tell us to what degree the hip was dislocated, but to, to be dislocated to even a slight degree would be serious. 
I understand it is extremely unusual to find someone that has dislocated his hip joint because the joint is so strong it requires a tremendous amount of force to move it out of its place. But it can and does happen. That's interesting because there is a dramatic modern parallel to the hip injury that Jacob suffered. One of the most multi-gifted athletes in modern times was Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson played dual professional sports. He was an outfielder for the Kansas City Royals. He could crush a baseball. He had a bazooka for an arm. And he was also a running back for the then Oakland Raiders. Raiders have now moved to Vegas. Um, I was privileged to have seen him in action in both sports. He was an amazing amazing athlete. Bo Jackson suffered an injury similar to Jacob's. During a 1991 playoff game between his Oakland Raiders and the Cincinnati Bengals, Bo was tackled from behind. Kevin Walker was the culprit. This is not a dirty play. This was a legitimate tackle. And this is that actual tackle. Now notice on the picture, as Bo was being tackled, he used his left leg to lunge forward to gain extra yardage. It is thought that he completely not partially, he completely dislocated his left hip, meaning that the ball end of that femur bone was pulled completely out of the hip socket as per the earlier slide we just showed. I have a friend who was actually at that game, and he said no one in the stands understood the seriousness of what had just happened, just that Bo had been injured and was taken to the locker room. So no one suspected uh, that it was that serious. I happened to see a documentary on Bo Jackson's career that chronicled his athletic prowess from childhood uh, until his retirement. That film said that only someone that had Bo's enormous strength could have possibly dislocated his hip to that extent. It was his unusual strength that caused that dislocation. And then, as he lay on the ground, In the immediate seconds after the hip, Bo claims that he felt the ball end of that femur bone come out of the hip socket, so he popped it back into place. The Raiders trainer said to Bo's friend in Kansas City third baseman George Brett after the game, he said, but that's just impossible. He couldn't have done that. That cannot happen. No one is that strong. But Bo was that strong. After surgery and during the rehabilitation period, Bo somehow lost blood supply to the head of that femur bone, causing, a, causing the femoral head to deteriorate. In medical language, that's called an avascular necrosis. The bone tissue dies and the bone itself starts to collapse. And because of that particular problem, Bo was forced to have a complete hip replacement and his incredible professional career ended soon after that. But the text states, Jacob's hip was dislocated. And the incredible part of this is that after suffering such a severe injury, he continued to wrestle. Remember, there weren't orthopedic surgeons at this time, and we just established that his hip couldn't have just popped back into place, and he was no Bo Jackson. So Jacob was chronically crippled and had to endure permanent pain as a result of that injury. And more on that next time. That was all a result of this crisis. We have all experienced a personal crisis, or at minimum a facsimile of a crisis. And when we find ourselves in a crisis, then we need to interrogate ourselves, ask probing questions. Has God caused this? 
Or has God permitted this in order to convince me to change? Remember, God is sovereign. Sovereign means He has, has absolute control. God is in charge of all things. That means that all that happens in this universe happens, one, because God in a direct sense caused it to happen, or second, God in an indirect sense permitted it to happen. So we should interrogate the situation. Has God caused this crisis or has God permitted this crisis in order to convince me to change? People change when one of three things happen to them. One, if someone learns enough that he wants to change. Someone might acquire enough knowledge to create in him a desire to change. Second, if someone receives enough that he is able to change, meaning he has enough to give him the confidence to change. Third, if someone hurts enough that he has to change. He must change. The fact is, most people do not change until the pain from the crisis becomes greater than the resistance to change. One more time. Most people do not change until the pain and hurt from the crisis becomes greater than the resistance to change. Jacob struggled all night grappling until the pain and suffering from that contest was so severe he felt forced to do something. 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard said that the church of his time was just plain at Christianity. If so, then I contend not much has changed since then. Kierkegaard said that most people see the preacher as an actor and then see themselves as his critics. Listen carefully. Kierkegaard said that most people see the preacher as an actor and then see themselves, the congregation, as his critics. But he added that what people don't realize is that congregants themselves are the actors and the preacher is the prompter off stage reminding them of their lost lines. That means on Sunday mornings through the means of sermonizing, I am acting as a prompter or a change agent. I should mention, I'm not an entertainer per se. I don't do stand-up. To entertain means to amuse. Sometimes I do say some stuff that could be construed as amusing. And, uh, you know, I regret it later probably, most often. But primarily as a preacher, I am supposed to be a change agent. Because the sole intention in biblical preaching is to affect a profound and permanent life change in the people I preach to. That would be the basic reason we are here. Not just to be informed, but to be transformed. I'm thankful if that does happen. But I am often frustrated because sometimes people do not listen. People do not listen. Some people refuse to listen to what God has said. And if someone doesn't listen, and then doesn't change, then God might use another stimulus to initiate change in that individual, and that stimulus might be a crisis, and a crisis can be extremely painful per Jacob's crisis. I have read, I don't know Cantonese or Mandarin, um, I have read though that the Chinese symbol for the word crisis is identical to the Chinese symbol for the word opportunities. 
So a crisis presents us opportunities to change. Notice Jacob struggled all night long. The important question to consider is, and what are we struggling against? What are we wrestling against? Is it a difficult or seeming impossible marriage? Is it an unreasonable stubborn boss? Or another aggravating co-worker? Is it financial difficulties? Is it unemployment? Is it ungrateful and insubordinate children? Is it a serious injury or a serious illness? Is it some addiction? And on and on and on. It might be a major crisis or a shake-up or a perpetual irritation or a nagging frustration. But I contend that God is still behind that situation. God is still in charge no matter what it is. And God can use that crisis to get our attention to bring about a change. Verse 26, And he, this pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate Jesus, said, Let me go, for the day breaks. So this opponent wanted to stop this match. He wanted out. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob was determined to continue to struggle in this grappling match until he received something from God. Jacob was persistent because he wanted God to bless him. Jacob wanted a change from what he had earlier been. God can use a crisis to get our attention. And he has mine. But then after he gets our attention... He doesn't usually, on a normal basis, create an immediate, immediate solution to the crisis that got our attention. Instead, God waits. Sometimes we do want change, and we are sincere about change. And God does want to bring about that change. But that change requires time. It probably took some time to get us into the mess we're in. Our Hang-ups didn't get there overnight. Our bad habits didn't happen on the spot. But the problem is that this is a microwave culture. And even sincere people that want change want instant change, immediate change. But God doesn't usually solve problems in an instant. Sometimes the reason God waits is because He wants us to see if we actually mean business. Are we sincere about changing? Because if we are sincere, then we're going to be persistent and determined to see that change through, just as Jacob was persistent and determined. Sometimes we miss out on the best God has because we give up too soon. The answer might be right around the corner. Sometimes we are great starters, but we don't finish so good. We cited statistics to that effect last time. We said that only 8%, 8% of people that have made New Year's resolutions actually keep those resolutions. Now, there are two common roadblocks that can cause us to second-guess this commitment to change. Two obstacles that can cause us to reconsider and not change. Don't miss them. One is potential negative. Potential negative. Inherent in change is the potential that something negative might happen after that change. The potential that something negative, something bad, might happen after that change. Consider the famous Ohio State football coach, Woody Hayes. I was never a fan. I thought he was a bully. Coach Hayes was a proponent of smash-mouth football. He stressed a strong running game because he had an aversion to passing. He made this 
infamous quote. He said, there are three things that can happen if we pass and two of them aren't good. Those two things are an incomplete pass and an interception. Could have added a fumble in there too, but he didn't. He felt that in passing the ball, the potential for negative results was too much, so he was content to just run the ball. The possible negative consequences resulting from change is a chance some people are extremely hesitant to accept. The argument is, I would like to change that, but if I do that, then this could happen, and that isn't good. Or that could happen, and that's bad. Or something else could happen. Yes, that's probably all true. That something could happen, but that shouldn't stop us. Someone said, don't walk because you might trip. Don't run because you might fall. Don't eat because you might choke. Don't make a decision because you might be wrong. Don't try because you might not succeed. And don't live because you might die. That's foolishness. People, listen, negative stuff happens. But that possible, potential negative shouldn't stop us from changing. The positive benefits from change outweigh the possible negative. The solution to addressing possible, potential negative effects from change is exercising faith. Exercising faith in God and faith in God's sovereign control of the outcome of that change. Some time ago, I preached a series through the book of Esther. Queen Esther literally saved the Jewish people, the race, from extinction. And she created a significant change in order to do that. She literally changed formal palace protocol in going to see the king to speak to him uninvited. In doing that, she could have been executed on the spot. But she trusted God. She had faith in God. And she wasn't afraid of the possible negative consequences. Remember that famous line from Esther 4 and verse 16. Just before she went to see the king, she said, And if I perish, I perish. Queen Esther didn't perish. And neither did the Jewish people. God honored that faith, and he still does. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, in this particular application, meaning where there is no faith in God, and no faith in God's ability to use even negative consequences, if there are some, for our ultimate good. Where that faith doesn't exist, then notice, it is impossible to please Him. If we know there's something God wants us to change, there's no doubt, there's no question. This change needs to happen. If we are aware of that, we have been convicted to change. Something we're not doing and should do. Something we are doing and shouldn't do. But we're afraid to create that change because something negative, something unfortunate, something bad could potentially happen. If we permit fear to prevent us from changing, then we aren't acting in faith and we aren't pleasing to God. I'm still waiting for some Christians 
to put more faith in God than in Dr. Fauci. Fauci has changed his supposed scientific opinions more often than I change socks. And for the record, I do change socks. Often. It's interesting that Dr. Fauci has received this vaccine and he still wears two masks. Not one, two. Not realizing that in doing that, he is essentially announcing to the public that a singular mask is ineffective. That is the message he is communicating. Our son Brian has an extensive uh, background in large, large mega large construction projects and he heard that and he commented on that and he said to us, he said, on a construction site, it's interesting, he said, no one wears two pairs of safety glasses. No one wears two safety helmets. Because one of each is all that is needed to protect someone. Sen- Senator Rand Paul just told Dr. Fauci there was a, a real tense exchange between them uh, just days ago and He said to Dr. Fauci that wearing a double mask was just theater. And it is. I don't listen to Dr. Fauci. He's a fear mongerer. And that's not from God. Use reasonable precautions. I have insisted on that from the beginning. But in the end, people trust God. Potential negative resulting from change is inevitable. But as Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel Syndicate, said, we do our best and then commit the rest to Him. That's faith. The second obstacle to changing is tradition. Tradition. One of the things Jesus had to constantly contend with was religious tradition that reminds me of the popular musical Fiddler on the Roof about some Russian Jewish people. And the song from that production I remember most is the song called Tradition. Tradition. Jewish tradition could be intense. And Jesus addressed that subject in Matthew 9, starting at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them Uh, in a figurative sense in a metaphorical sense Jesus is considered the bridegroom and the church consisting of us are are his bride but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast now notice verse 16 no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment why? for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. There are two parables mentioned here. The first one is mentioned in verse 16, and is called a new cloth on an old garment. A new cloth on an old garment. This particular parable is about patching some older clothing that someone has, because that particular article of clothing has a tear in it. So it needs to be patched. The most common cloth at that time was made from wool or linen, and both materials would shrink if washed. So a patch of cloth would first need to be pre-washed and pre-shrunk. 
Or else, if that cloth patch were sewn onto an older garment, once that garment and this patch, made from new cloth, was washed, that patch would shrink and create an even bigger tear in the garment. So a new cloth patch and an old garment were incompatible. The second parable is found in verse 17, and it's called new wine in old wineskins. New wine in old wineskins, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Ancient wine would be stored in wineskins, and wineskins were basically bags, most often made from goksin. And those bags had a spigot or a spout at the end, at one end to pour from. Through simple aging, the wineskin bag would have been stretched to its limit. And in that climate of the Middle East, it would get so dried, the leather would, it would get so dried, it would become brittle and was susceptible to tearing and breaking open. The essence of this second parable is that it would be foolish to put new wine that had just been made into an old wineskin bag because the older wineskin bag would have been weakened from aging. The new wine would then expand during the fermentation process. The pressure would be built up inside the bag and it would start to stretch the older wineskin that was no longer stretchable, causing the older wineskin to rip open and the wine would then spill out. Old wineskins would break apart under the pressure created from the new wine as it would ferment. So new wine had to be stored in new wineskins. That was the only suitable container because new wine and old wineskins were incompatible. Jesus used these parables to illustrate something. He was illustrating that he was changing the existing established traditional Jewish religious system. He was creating something entirely different. He was not teaching a reformed Phariseeism or a reformed rabbinicalism, but a completely different approach to relating to God. Don't miss that. He was creating a completely different approach to relating to God than that of traditional Judaism. Jesus did not come to improve the old religious system but to renounce that old system and then to create another system as its substitute. Jesus was teaching that these two religious systems, traditional Judaism and its massive, massive amount of intricate, minuscule regulations and rituals and his uh, system that he was establishing, he was teaching that these two systems were incompatible he taught that this new system he was instituting could not be connected to the old system, as in a patch of new cloth could not be sewn onto an old garment, and such as new wine could not be stored in an old wineskin. The two systems could not be connected to one another or be contained one inside the other. Now please don't misunderstand this. This old garment and this old wineskin mentioned here in this text, in these parables, were not were not the basic teachings of the Old Testament, per se. Uh, Dr. Charles Stanley has pastored First Baptist Church Atlanta, what seems forever. He's been on television, extremely popular. Uh, Dr. Stanley has just retired. 
I don't understand that. He's only 88. I don't get it. Why, what's he doing that for? Doesn't make sense to me. His son Andy Stanley pastors a large mega congregation, multiple sites in northern Atlanta. And Andy Stanley has created some serious controversy of late because he argues that as part of the New Testament culture, as Christians, we should, quote, unhitch ourselves, meaning disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament. Unhitch or disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament. No, we shouldn't. The New Testament authors didn't unhitch themselves and didn't disconnect themselves from the Old Testament. Those men quoted from the Old Testament hundreds, hundreds of times. Jesus himself quoted from 24 Old Testament books. Only five of the 39 Old Testament books aren't quoted in the New Testament. Some of the teaching of the Old Testament is still applicable to us. The Ten Commandments are still a really good idea, don't you think? So the old garment and the old wineskin mentioned here were not the basic teachings of the Old Testament, but the old garment and the old wineskins in this parable, these parables, represented the hundreds of Jewish rabbinical traditions formed throughout the centuries that sometimes superseded and contradicted the Old Testament teachings. I mean, these rabbis got together and extrapolated from the Mosaic Law into these hundreds and hundreds of rabbinical traditions that people were expected to keep. And some of those traditions superseded and contradicted the Old Testament teachings themselves. And those man-made rabbinical traditions constituted traditional Judaism at the time of Jesus. That ritualistic, legalistic, external rules and regulations and self-earned righteousness was incompatible with Jesus' teaching that acceptance to God was a totally relational thing. It's not through doing, doing, doing. It's through accepting and receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so... <laughs> It wasn't the complicated religious rules and rituals of traditional Judaism. Jesus said no to that. Jesus instituted himself as the means of salvation and forgiveness of sin. Jesus was the ultimate human change agent. And the changes Jesus created turned established Judaism and its traditions upside down. Jesus demonstrated that although traditions can be intimidating, it shouldn't stop us from creating needed change. I realize I'm using more athletic analogies than normal, but some of us that are older remember that in track and field competition before the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, high jumpers used techniques such as the straddle technique or the western roll in order to propel themselves over the bar. But then a college student from Oregon named Dick Fosbury created a paradigm shift. Tim Murray, who attends the first service, said, um, he said, uh, I attended high school with Dick Fosbury. He was on our track team. thought that was interesting. Uh, he created a massive change in high jumping technique. Before then, normally someone would run straight at the bar before attempting to jump over it. Using this technique, he would sprint in a diagonal line toward the high jump bar, and then he would curve, and from about four feet away, 
uh, from the bar. He would jump up and backwards, literally backwards, going back first over the bar and landing in the cushion pit. This is an example of that technique. I can't even begin to comprehend the difficulty of that maneuver. That's amazing to me. And at first other coaches and athletes and sports writers made fun of Fosbury and mocked that strange technique because it was so untraditional. No one had ever done that before. It was so unorthodox and they called it the Fosbury flop. But Dick Fosbury won a gold medal at the 68 Olympic Games using that technique. He jumped seven feet four and one quarter inches. And today, it is the singular high-jumping technique used in international competition. And in 1993, it propelled one man from Cuba, whose name I cannot pronounce, it propelled him more to jump more than eight vertical feet. Eight feet, almost one-half inch in height, and just seeing the video of that jump just gives me chills. It's amazing. No world-class high jumper now doesn't use the technique that Mr. Fosbury created because he dared to challenge and change tradition. I read about a man that turned 105. That's an amazing number. And a reporter from the local newspaper came out to see him and do an article on his unusual advanced stage. This old man was sitting on his porch. And this reporter said to him, Sir, I bet you have seen a lot of changes in your lifetime. This old man said, yes, I have, Sonny, and I've been against every one of them. <laughs> That's because the older we get, I'm speaking from personal experience, the older we are, the more apt we are to hang on to our traditions and the more resistant we are to change. We are more comfortable couched in our long-standing traditions. And to, to change moves us out of our traditional comfort zones. And we sometimes resist that. From nine months before birth, I was raised in more traditional Baptist congregations. Think through that one. From nine months before birth, my mother attended church during her pregnancy. And so I attended church during her pregnancy. As I said, I was a man trapped in a woman's body, and then I was born. That's what happened. But I'm not, I'm not a traditionalist. I was raised in traditionalist churches. I am open to change. I do change. Sometimes it requires a hard sell. Sometimes there's a, an intense debate because I'm stubborn, hard-headed. But I do change. At those times, I feel God expects change from me, although those change have to be biblical or I'm not going to accept change. For the first almost decade of pastoring, I preached the traditional doctrine of tithing. Most Protestant and evangelical denominations and Baptist and Baptist groups in particular teach tithing. The money manager of a guru, Dave Ramsey, we teach his course here. Dave Ramsey teaches tithing. The word tithe means 10%. It is a mathematical word. It is not a religious word per se. So tithing, according to tradition, means God expects 10% of our income to be contributed to the church. 10%. I might add this. Do you realize we have not passed an offering plate in more than 12 months? How unusual is that? That's untraditional. 
Baptists always pass an offering plate. And if you attend a black Baptist congregation, they pass the plate. And if they don't get enough, they pass it again. Second time. That's what happens. I have friends I know. All of, with all of this emphasis on tithing, it's amazing to me, just 4% of evangelicals actually tithe. 4%. According to tradition, if we contribute to the church something less than 10%, something less than a tithe, 7%, 8%, or even 9%, according to tradition, that's not close enough. Close doesn't count except in horseshoes and hand grenades. So according to tradition, giving God less than 10%, the full tithe, is considered disobedience. This is how I was raised. My father taught me, son, if you get a dollar, a dime goes to God. I expect you to put that in the offering plate. I was taught that. I didn't argue. I was just glad to get the dollar. And so, uh, by the way, I did not get allowance. I worked my tail off. My mother violated every child labor law imaginable. It was incredible. The abuse I endured. Never got an allowance. I said to my dad once, I said, Dad, I never get a penny for doing anything. He went to the room, came back, gave me a penny. He said, there you are. Anyway, he had a sick sense of humor. So that's what I was taught. Earlier on, though, I was challenged to demonstrate from Scripture that tithing was a New Testament requirement. I tried, and I couldn't do that, because the New Testament texts that do mention tithing were in the context of the Old Testament, where tithing was required as part of ancient Jewish taxation. During Old Testament times, God required from the people three different tithes, a temple tithe in order to support the Levites, a festival tithe in order to support all the religious festivals and feasts, and then a benevolence tithe. For the poor, it was a welfare thing. So God required three different tithes from the Israelites as taxes used to fund the economy of the ancient three theocratic nation of Israel. And then there were also some required offerings over and above those tithes. But that was then. We do not exist as part of a theocratic nation. The state of Israel does exist now. It is purely secular. This is the church age. That was then and this is now. After some serious investigation, I learned that the New Testament doesn't teach a required percentage of someone's income. Instead, the New Testament teaches a practice called proportionate giving. Proportionate giving is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. I have an entire archive message on that subject. Proportionate giving is where we give to God proportionate to how God has blessed us. Proportionate giving is where we give to God proportionate to how God has blessed us. If He blesses us with more, we bless Him with more. Contingent on someone's financial situation, I encourage beginning Christians to start giving consistently around 4%, 5%. And some of my Baptist brethren go, that's heresy, man. You can't do that. But I, I encourage them to start there. They have small faith. This is a big step. And then I encourage them, do it consistently. Increase, though, that giving percentage in proportion and amount as God blesses them financially. I am convinced, someone said to me just days ago, Pastor, we have learned we cannot outgive God. 
and I agree, if someone would consistently practice proportionate giving, then over time, that person would see God bless them more and more and more. And as he does, this person would then be able to give God more than the 10% tithe. That has happened to us. If we were to just tithe, if we were to just give 10% of our gross income, then there would be a significant decrease in our contribution record. Our treasurer is Derek Rickford. He was here for a service. He knows our income. He has our contribution record. So he can confirm or deny what I just said. Feel free to ask him. He'll probably laugh at you, but go ahead. What he doesn't know are the charitable gifts we give periodically to other ministries, parachurch ministries, other nonprofit organizations, and private gifts we give to individuals in need. In fact, in 2018, those gifts to other ministries, other causes and people and persons outside this congregation totaled almost as much as our contribution to this church. Why did that happen or how did that happen? God had blessed us so much more in 2018. So we were able to bless Him more. That's giving proportionate to how God has blessed us. But that's not exactly traditional Baptist teaching. Sometimes I have been shunned and or rejected because I dared to deviate from the traditional Baptist norm. Question, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, four. One to actually change the bulb, and three to reminisce and talk about how great the old light bulb was. I'm serious. Get this. One commentator said, Jacob was 97 at this time. But even at age 97, quitting wasn't an option to him. So Jacob continued to struggle and struggle and struggle throughout that night until he got from God the blessing he wanted. That means, people, it is never, never, never too late to change. Toward the end of the 19th century, a Swedish chemist named Alfred Nobel awoke one morning to read his own obituary in the newspaper. That had to be a shock. That obituary read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, died yesterday. Through the means of his explosives, Mr. Nobel devised a means to kill more people in warfare than ever thought possible. And in doing that, he died an extremely rich man. But that was a mistake. That was actually Alfred's older brother that had just died, and a newspaper reporter had just bungled that obituary. But that mistaken account had a serious, profound effect on Alfred Nobel. He decided that he wanted to be known for something other than developing the means to kill massive amounts of people. He wanted to be known for something other than amassing a fortune in the process of creating that means of killing people. So he initiated the Nobel Peace Prize, awarded to those scientists and writers and others who contribute to global peace. Nobel made this statement. Listen to this. Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midlife and write a new one. Mr. Nobel had the unique chance to evaluate his life toward the end of his life and still live long enough after that to change that assessment. And the Nobel Peace Prize is the result of that change. 
It is extremely doubtful that we can read our own obituaries in the newspaper. Probably isn't going to happen. But we can decide to change starting now. Now, just as Jacob did. I want us to stand to our feet. This morning, let's stand together. I'm going to ask, um, Ted, would you come to the pulpit, please? Ted Angle is uh, a very committed layman. He's not a pastor, but he loves pastors, and uh, that's very apparent. And uh, he's a good man. He spent 35 years working for the Nevada Bureau of Land Management. Is that right? He spent eight years in Tonopah. He's the only man I know who's been to hell and back. Right there. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's just ugly there. Anyway. Ted, we're glad you're here. And by the way, if you haven't met Ted or Sharon after the service, come on up and meet them. Okay, please do that. I hope you will. Ted, why don't you lead us in prayer as we go, please. We're glad you came. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. It's a very warm church. I just sense it, so thank you. Lord, uh, we, we come to you this morning thanking you, Lord, that you've uh, filled, filled us up with your word. Um, Lord, uh, truly in my life and probably in the lives of most people that are here, uh, change has been difficult. And um, we resent change because, well, uh, sometimes, as we've heard, it it can be painful. In fact, normally it is. And, uh, oh, Lord, we wish for an easy change, but oftentimes you uh, need to do surgery on us, uh, on our hearts. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for the word that was preached this morning, Lord, that... uh, uh, it, it got into my heart, Lord, for sure. And, uh, Lord, as we, we go forward, now we have an opportunity to apply what we've learned so that it isn't just information that goes in one ear and out the other, but, Lord, that we would um, evaluate it and apply it to our lives. So help us all, Lord, to take some moments this week, maybe even as we get into our cars to leave, to... Uh, Think about what we've heard this morning. Remember the uh, scriptures and illustrations, and then, uh, Lord, to let you do the changing that is necessary. Uh, Father, thank you for this church. It's a lighthouse in this community. Um, Father, thank you that uh, this church stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, in a time when this world is, well, it needs the gospel. So um, thank you, Lord, as, uh, as we go. Uh, Father, I, I just feel that you have blessed us this morning with this preached word and with, uh, with the worship time. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.